Thank you, guys. Please turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11 once again. Last week, I posed the question, as we read Hebrews 11, sometimes we ask, why this and not that? Why does Hebrews 11 mention these Old Testament saints? That kind of surprised us. And does not mention that or those Old Testament saints uh, that we might have expected. Now, I don't think any of us would ask that question when it comes to Moses. Uh, If we're talking about the hall of faith, uh, we recognize Moses as a central character in God's plan of redemption revealed in the Old Testament. So, it comes as no surprise that Moses would be featured here. Now, so far, the focus has been on the faithfulness of God to His promises, to His covenant. they're saints like Abraham and Isaac and, and, and Jacob and Joseph. They set their hearts upon the promises God made. And they live their lives waiting for the fulfillment of those covenant promises. And in many cases, they did not see those promises fulfilled in this life. And so they, by faith, looked forward. Please, let me read verse 13 and following. It says, these all died in faith not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God's not ashamed to be called their God, and He's prepared for them a city. So, the emphasis up to this point has been that forward-looking faith to the faithfulness of God, to His promises, and to the eternal rewards that are rooted in His covenant. When we come to Moses, we see new dimensions to his faith. Abraham and the patriarchs endured the trial of waiting. Moses and the children of Israel endured a more severe trial, the trial of centuries of slavery and cruel oppression in the land of Egypt. And if you go back and read in Exodus chapter 2, we read that the more the Egyptians oppressed the the Hebrews, the stronger and more numerous they became, such that the Egyptians lived in dread of them, which led to even more intense persecution. And that does raise an interesting question. Why are people so hostile to Christians many times? The reality is, sometimes it's rooted in fear. But that's a different subject this morning. So, Pharaoh made the bondage of the Hebrews more and more oppressive to the people of God. First, he ordered the Hebrew midwives to uh, kill any baby boys that were born. The girls, you can let them live, but the baby boys kill them. Well, they did not obey that order. And they went and told, when he called them in, Pharaoh said, well, why didn't you do what I said? And they said, well, the Hebrew wives are, Hebrew mothers are, are, are more vigorous than the Egyptians. Uh, when I'm called to come and deliver, they've already delivered before I get there. And so, uh, in so doing that, they, they preserved life. They disobeyed his wicked command. Now, some have raised the question, was it right for them to lie? The reality is, they didn't owe him the truth. It says God blessed them because of what they did. And doesn't make scruple about the fact that they didn't speak the truth. They, didn't, they, they, they deceived him. But it was in order to do that which is right. He was ordering something wicked, and they could not do that. But that's, again, we won't get off onto that. 
So when he realized that plan failed, then he made a decree to the Egyptians. And I'm, I take it here to mean primarily probably his soldiers. Anytime a baby is born to a Hebrew family, if it's a girl, let her live. But if it's a boy, take that baby from that family, cast him into the Nile that no more boys would be born. It reminds us very much of the slaughter of the babies when the Lord Jesus was born and Herod felt threatened. Exodus 1, 22 says, Pharaoh commanded his people, every son that's born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So the Egyptians are now instructed to commit this atrocity. There was this desperate fear that led to a desperate time for the people of God. Now, by all appearances, it would be very easy to conclude God has abandoned us. The gods of the Egyptians seem to be prevailing over the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. So this was the situation into which Moses was born. And it's against this backdrop of oppression, of danger, that we see the faith of Moses and of his parents shine even more brightly. So there are four points I want to make from this text. First of all, faith obeys God rather than men. And the second is that faith forsakes the attractions of this world. Thirdly, faith lays up treasures in heaven. And then finally, faith stands firm and fearless. So let's look. First of all, faith obeys God rather than men. Verse 23, by faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. This verse actually highlights the faith not of Moses but of his mom and dad who were Levites, by the way. They hid him. They didn't, they didn't let anyone know that they'd given birth. she'd given birth. They hid him for three months. Kids, you know the story, right? Eventually, Moses began to make too much noise, and they couldn't hide him any longer. And so his mother, Jochebed, made a, 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 a basket out of reeds, out of bulrushes, and she lined it with pitch, and she put baby Moses in that basket and put it in the shallow water in the, among the reeds in the Nile River. And Moses' oldest sister, Mary, uh, Miriam, was posted to keep watch and to see what happened to her baby brother. In the providence of God, Pharaoh's daughter came to that very spot to take a bath. Did she know? Did Moses' mother know that was the place? I don't know. There's no indication that's the case. But she saw the basket. They brought it to her. She heard the baby cry. She recognized this is a Hebrew baby. And instead of doing what her father had decreed, she adopted him and brought him into the palace and made him her own son, raised him in the riches and the luxury of Pharaoh's palace. He, Moses grew up with all the privileges and all of the luxuries of Egyptian royalty. Now, it's interesting here, it says that the author of Hebrews tells us that they saw that their child was beautiful, and that's reflected in what we read in Exodus chapter 2. They saw their son was beautiful or handsome. Now, let's be honest. What parent in here doesn't look at your baby and say, this is the most beautiful baby in the world, right? Okay, that's just a natural parental affection. But I don't believe the Scriptures are intending to indicate simply natural parental affection. I believe there's a recognition. There's something particularly special about this baby. God has his hand on this baby. We must protect him at all costs. 
So whatever they saw in Moses fortified their courage, and they were willing to risk their lives and disobey the edict of the king. They, it says they were not afraid of the king's edict. Now, I want to unpack that statement for a minute. They hid the baby. They didn't parade him around and go, here's our baby son, and we defy you to try to take him away from us and put him to death. Uh, that would be foolhardy. There's this idea that really trusting God means you'll go boldly out into the public square, and there were times that was the case. The apostles went out into the public square and preached Jesus, and got all kinds of heat for it. But many times it's appropriate to avoid such conflict. When, Paul was, uh, when Paul's life was threatened over and over again, numerous cities, he would leave town quietly and go to another place in order to preserve his life. The Lord Jesus himself avoided crowds or passed through crowds to escape their intentions to put him to death because it was not yet his time. And so, there's not a cavalierness here. There's a, a caution and a carefulness. And that doesn't mean they were afraid and living in fear. They simply were willing to do the hard thing and protect this child and take common sense measures to do so. I would say I, I feel quite sure they felt fear, right? I mean, who wouldn't? But they did not let fear rule their lives, rule their hearts, determine their actions. They trusted that God would protect them, that God would protect their son, and he did. Moses is discovered by the daughter of Pharaoh. He's adopted <clears throat> and raised in the security of Pharaoh's family. So their faith led them to obey God rather than men. Now, that reminds me of the courage in the apostles, of the apostles that we read about in the book of Acts. They defied the order. They were told, do not preach in the name of Jesus, and they went out and preached in his name anyway. Now, they didn't, they didn't uh, arrogantly press their issue, but when they were ordered, do not preach anymore in this name, the apostles responded, we must obey God rather than men. You decide <laughs> what you think is right, but we cannot help but proclaim what we have seen and heard. Faith leads us to count the cost and entrust our lives to our faithful God. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were ordered by King Nebuchadnezzar, bow down to this golden image, and if you refuse to do so, you will be thrown into this fiery furnace. They did not, when, when the trumpet blew, they did not go out in the public square and say, we defy you, Nebuchadnezzar. They just didn't do what he told them to do. And they were turned in by their political rivals, their religious rivals. And Nebuchadnezzar was incensed and furious. And their response was, Nebuchadnezzar, king, our God is able to deliver us <clears throat> from this fiery furnace. But whether he does or not is irrelevant. We're not going to bow down. Faith in God led them to difficult obedience, to obey God rather than men. So Moses' parents, by faith, hid their baby son. And that caution wasn't, wasn't a lack of faith. It was an example of great faith. So faith leads us to obey God rather than men. And there's a place for conscientious civil disobedience when governing authorities order us to do things that are sinful. 
We must obey God rather than men. And there's a host of ways that can be applied, but we'll move on. Faith forsakes the attraction of this world. Look at verse 24 and 25. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Here we are considering now the faith of Moses himself. He fast forwards, and we find Moses a grown man, raised in the palace, apparently shielded from the plight of his Hebrew kinsmen. At some point as an adult, he becomes aware of what they're experiencing. He goes out among them, and he looked upon their burdens, we read. Now, again, Moses is raised as a member of the royal family, and usually when you're raised in royalty or privilege, you have a sense of entitlement. But rather than looking on others and saying, that's their problem, as long as I keep my head down, I'm okay, he chose rather to identify with the Hebrews, these are my people. In fact, Hebrews 11, we don't, we don't see this in Exodus, but Hebrews 11 suggests that maybe Moses even abandoned or, 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 or uh, uh, renounced his royal status. It says, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God. And so many believe that he returned, he left the palace and, and, and went to live with the Hebrews, live among them. Uh, now again, Exodus doesn't say one way or the other. We, we don't know all the details, but we do know that on a particular day as he's among his people, he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew slave cruelly. And he determines, I've got to do something about this. And so it doesn't sound like he intervened immediately because he looked around and nobody was there. So apparently whoever he was beating probably wasn't there either. He killed that Egyptian. And he tried to bury him in the sand and cover up his deed. And then we read that the very next day, there were two Hebrew men that were fighting, and Moses intervened, and the man who was the perpetrator said to Moses, are you going to kill me too, like you did that Egyptian yesterday? And suddenly Moses realized, my secret is not so secret after all. And then word got to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh determined, I am going to put this man to death. That makes me think that maybe Moses wasn't still living in the palace that Moses wasn't enjoying the privilege of Egyptian royalty, or he could have intervened and told that, that Egyptian beating the Hebrew, you need to stop what you're doing. I'm a prince of Egypt. We don't see that happening. So that's the backstory. Moses' life is threatened, and he flees, and he goes into the wilderness where he lives as a shepherd for 40 years. He marries, he has children. Hebrews 11 tells us that Moses had a choice to make. He could continue to live in the palace. He could enjoy all the comforts and the luxuries and the privileges of royalty. Uh, you might say fat, dumb, and happy and ignorant of the plight of his people. And let's not overlook the fact that Pharaoh was the most powerful ruler of his day. Museums today give testimony to just how vast the wealth and riches and the luxuries of Egypt were. But it was a pagan, idolatrous luxury. It was a lifestyle permeated with false gods, 
that denied the one true God. So I can cast my lot here where I have been raised where I know is not true, or I can cast my lot with the people of God and the one true God and make their cause my cause. Moses was faced with a choice. And he chose to cast his lot with the people of God to endure with them the mistreatment that they were experiencing. He refused to turn his back on the oppression of his people. He made their cause his own. Now, I want you to see something really important here. It says in verse 25, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Kids, I want you to hear me. Pay close attention here. Sin is enjoyable. Sin feels good. Venting your anger, asserting your selfishness, doing what you want to do, there's pleasure in it. There is. So why not do it? Well, you know, Jesus told his disciples, I'm going to make you fishers of men. Satan's a fisher of men too. And a good fisherman uses lures to attract fish, they take the bait, and they're caught. Satan doesn't lure us with things that are not attractive. He doesn't lure us with bait that doesn't appeal, that's not pleasurable. So he appeals to our desires. He appeals to that love of comfort, that love of having my own way, that love of pleasure, that love of enjoyment. But if we saw sin for what it really was at the outset, it would lose its attraction. If we recognize just how damaging and how destructive, how the misery brought on by sin, it would lose its glamour and its appeal. But Satan is very good at disguising that. So while the pleasure's real, it doesn't last. In Hebrews 11, it says he, it speaks of the fleeting pleasures of sin. However enjoyable sin might be, and it is, it will wear off. And on the back end, there will be consequences. There will be corruption. There will be sorrow. There will be misery. Paul says in Galatians, don't be mocked. God, or, or, or do not be deceived. God is not mocked. What a man sows, he will also reap. If you sow to the flesh, from the flesh you'll reap corruption. But if you sow the Spirit, in the Spirit you'll reap life and peace. Thomas Brooks, in his excellent book, Precious Remedies for Satan's Devices, puts it this way. He says, one of the ways that Satan, one of the devices Satan uses to snare the soul into sin, he presents the bait and hides the hook. We don't see the hook there. We just see the bait and go, wow, that looks really delicious. That looks enjoyable. That looks fun. And it is, until the hook is set in your jaw and you realize, I'm in a heap of trouble. And then your misery takes you places you never dreamed of going. Satan does not dangle delightful pleasures in front of you to make you happy. Let me say that again. Satan doesn't hang, doesn't present pleasurable experiences, doesn't uh, present uh, enjoyable opportunities in front of you because he wants to make you happy. He wants to ruin you. He wants to destroy your life. He wants to fill your life with misery. And if he has to seduce you with pleasure to do it, that's all fine. One of his most effective methods of undercutting our faith 
is this very seduction that blinds us to the fleeting nature of sin. Proverbs puts it this way. Young people, you, I hope your parents are teaching you to read the Proverbs, right? And in Proverbs 9, we read of the woman folly. It says the woman folly is loud. She's seductive, and she knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by who are going straight on their way. People are going the right direction. And she says, whoever's simple, let him turn in here. Turn off that straight way. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water sweet. And bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he doesn't know that the dead are there and her guests are in the depths of Sheol. Let me ask you something. Do you understand that stolen water can be sweet for a while? Do you understand that, that bread eaten in secret, that secret sin for a time can bring great pleasure? But it leads to destruction every single time. If you have this idea that I, I, can, I can indulge in sin and manage it, I can keep it under control. No, you can't. Satan has no intention of giving you pleasure that you can somehow manage and control. He wants mastery. He wants to rule you. He wants to put you in bondage. And whatever pleasure might come with sin, it's going to be short-lived. And in the end, it leads to misery. It leads to destruction. Moses understood this dynamic. Moses understood all the pomp and pleasure and all the glitz and glamour of Egyptian royalty. He understood it was fleeting, that it would not last. And by faith, he saw sin and idolatry for what it really is. He recognized there's going to be a count, a cost, if I'm going to follow the Lord. It's going to cost me something. He counted that cost. Moses' obedience foreshadowed the call of discipleship our Lord gave us. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. You just stay in the, in, in the palace and hunker down and live for the pleasures of this world. You save your life, you'll lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What does it profit a man if he gained the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will you give in return? Or what will he give in return for his soul? Hear me. If you love the world, the world's going to love you back. But if you love the Lord Jesus and you identify with him and you identify with his people, the world is going to treat you the way they treated Jesus. He told his disciples, the servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you also. Be prepared for that. And by faith, Moses was willing to endure mistreatment with the people of God rather than rest and indulge himself in the fleeting pleasures of sin. Again, what's the context that is being addressed here in Hebrews? It's written to Hebrew believers who are feeling the tug of the world to come back, to renounce Christianity and go back to the safe, comfortable fold of Judaism where there was no real life where there was a sacrificial system that saves no one, where they can get along and not experience oppression and persecution, but in the end, they experience no glory and no eternal life. And so the writer of Hebrews appeals to the example of Moses. He says, this is what persevering faith looks like. It, it sets its heart 
on that which is eternal. That leads us to the next point in verse 26. Faith lays up treasures in heaven. It tells us that he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. So verses 23 and 24, or excuse me, 24 and 25 tell us what Moses did. Verse 26 tells us why he did it. What was his thought process? What was going on in Moses' mind? Recognize, again, his legal status entitled him to the treasures of Egypt. It wasn't a matter of somebody sitting around going, boy, I sure would like to win the lottery. What would that be like? He'd won the lottery. He was enjoying wealth and privilege like you and I could barely imagine. And he legitimately could have lived out the rest of his life as a wealthy man. And a life of that kind of luxury is hard to leave. Remember the rich young ruler? His riches had such a hold on his life, Jesus recognized, you know, he said, well, I've kept all the Ten Commandments. And well, Jesus starts with the first, have no other gods before me. Recognizes his riches were a god. And he says, well, leave all that, give it to the poor, come follow me. And that was it. End of conversation. He was an idolater from the outset. Moses recognized the appeal of that kind of luxury. He grew up under it. But in, by faith, Moses does a mathematical calculation. He does a cost-benefit analysis. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, the word here, he considered the reproach of Christ of greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. He looked at one, how valuable is this? How fulfilling is this? How satisfying is this? Looked at the other, how valuable, how fulfilling, how satisfying is that? The word that's used here, he considered it's an accounting term. There, there are different words that, that speak of comparisons. Some of them refer to subjective comparisons. This is kind of how I feel. I feel better about this than about that. This word is about objective comparisons. It's, it's plain, black and white on the accounting ledger. This is what the value is. Take it or leave it. So Moses assesses these two different competing value systems. And again, Please understand, as he considers the values of the treasures of Egypt, he's not doing so from afar. He has been experiencing that. That's what he was accustomed to. And so he considered the value of what he'd grown up under and, frankly, what it was going to cost him to walk away from it. And then he considered the value of the reproach of Jesus Christ. And, and Moses, doing this mathematical cost-benefit analysis, comes to this objective conclusion that suffering shame and reproach and hatred and even persecution is more valuable, more to be preferred, more advantageous than all the gold and silver of Egypt. That's faith. You don't do that by feeling. You don't do that by what tasted good for dinner last night by what you can see and handle and taste and touch, that he's believing what God has said because all these other delicacies were laid out before him, paraded constantly. Now, it wasn't that, that Moses was a glutton for punishment. It says that he was looking for the reward. And, and, and our Lord, that takes us back to our Lord's uh, 
a command in Matthew 6, I mentioned a moment ago. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But rather, lay up for yourselves uh, treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. And as much as living in the palace of Pharaoh looked utterly secure, a lifestyle that was impregnable, we know that's not the case, don't we? We know the rest of the story. And Moses stayed with Pharaoh, and the Lord had used somebody else to lead the people of Israel out. He likely would have been in a chariot right next to his father when the Red Sea washed over them, and he would have perished. So not only did Moses not cling to earthly treasure, he wasn't laying up treasure, he turned his back on the treasure that he already had. The verb here says he looked, looking toward the reward. That word is literally to look away. There's a word to see or to look, and it, it's, it, this is a compound word, to look away. So he's looking away from the riches of this world toward the treasure, the reward in store for all those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Now, you might ask the question, wait a minute, Moses was, I don't know, 11, 12, 1300 years before Jesus was born. How was he looking toward the reproach or anything of Christ? The author doesn't say the reproach of God or the people of God or the Lord. He says of Jesus of Christ. Well, Genesis 3, you remember in that sentence upon the serpent, after he seduced Adam and Eve, he said, I'm going to put enmity not only between you and the woman, but between you and her offspring. And you're going to bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. That's the very first prediction of a Messiah who would come and defeat Satan. And so there was this messianic expectation developing among the people of God from the very outset, from the very beginning. Jesus said in John chapter 8, Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. The Old Testament saints looked toward Messiah. They believed that God would send his chosen one. They didn't know all the details. But their faith was in God's Messiah. Even then, salvation was by grace alone, through faith alone, not by all of those works. So, here's Moses growing up in unspeakable luxury, lavish privilege. And then we have the Hebrew Christians, or, uh, or Hebrew believers experiencing reproach because they're the people of God. Moses chooses whom he'll identify with. And that's powerful because the writer of Hebrews is addressing oppressed Christians, Hebrew Christians, who are experiencing reproach, who are experiencing uh, a, a cost for their faith, and they're tempted to turn back. And he's saying, look at what the faith of Moses did, and look what God did, who's ever faithful. Moses could endure the reproach of Christ. We can as well. Because God is faithful to his promises. And it's not that Moses was impervious to hatred. It's not that these things did not affect him. It's that his heart was set on the reward that was promised by the Lord. Our Lord told us in Matthew chapter 5, he said, Blessed are those 
or persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Moses had title to the kingdom of Egypt, and Jesus says, I got a better kingdom. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, sake, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. Why? For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus tells us, look to the reward. Let the promise of that reward motivate you, comfort you, reassure you, to give you a basis to rejoice and be glad when being a Christian is really, really hard and painful. And there will be times it may be that. Can you imagine what was said about Moses when he goes before Pharaoh and says, let my people go? Can you imagine the reproach, the hatred, the slander, the mocking, the ridicule? Who in the world do you think you are? Peter told us, similarly, that the glory of heaven is our reward. He says in 1 Peter chapter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Hear me, Christian. That doesn't mean we go around with this fatalistic expectation that we're going to get clobbered. But when affliction, persecution come upon us as Americans in the land of the free and the home of the brave with our religious liberties, that we don't expect that. Jesus says we should. Peter says we should. Don't be surprised if it comes upon you as though something strange were happening. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, however painful that might be, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. However difficult affliction, persecution, slander, ridicule, hatred, however difficult those may be, however difficult the reproach of Christ might have been for Moses, the spirit of glory and of God rests on him, and that's of infinitely greater value. Now, again, Egypt was magnificent. There was grandeur. There was splendor. The the museums we go to today bear witness to the wealth of Egypt, but all of that wealth, all of those riches, all of that sophistication could never satisfy a single soul, could never secure eternity for anyone. So Moses turned his gaze away from the treasures of Egypt, which by all accounts were rightly his. He fixed his eyes firmly on the glory of heaven. And by faith, Moses looked toward a reward that he couldn't see. He looked away from the riches that he could see toward a reward he could not see. Set his heart upon it, and that changed everything about his perspective of life and the way he lived his life. So faith sets its heart on eternal pleasures. And finally, faith stands firm and fearless. Look again at verse 27. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. This verse refers to Moses' confrontation with Pharaoh, not when he fled from, uh, to the wilderness 40 years earlier, but after God has appeared to him in the burning bush and said, I want you to go before Pharaoh and tell him this, let my people go. Now, if you remember Exodus chapter 3, Moses was not too keen on this mission. In fact, Moses raised every conceivable argument 
to try to negotiate his way out of this assignment God had given him. He did not want to do it. He was perfectly content living out the rest of his days on the backside of the wilderness, taking care of sheep, and just keeping his head down. And God said, no. You're going to go and you carry out this mission. In fact, Moses' argument continued, and God gave him miraculous powers and said, do these miracles. It'll convince people. And Moses, even then, and, and, and God's anger was kindled against Moses, we read. Now, that's when you go read the Old Testament. When you read the New Testament, Hebrews 11 ignores all of his foibles and failures and fears and speaks of the courage that he had when he stood before Pharaoh. And certainly, he could not have stood before Pharaoh had he been quaking in fear. Humanly speaking, Moses going before Pharaoh, fresh out of the wilderness, he was a nobody. Possibly he had a price on his head. There's every reason to believe Pharaoh is not going to listen to him. The reality is, humanly speaking, Pharaoh held everyone's life in his hands. He could have Moses killed simply by giving the order at any moment. And so how in the world could Moses hope to prevail against the most powerful ruler in the entire world? Verse 27 says, Moses wasn't afraid of the anger of the king. Now, I want you to think how loaded that statement is for just a minute. Did Moses have legitimate reason to be afraid of the king's anger? I'll nod your head, yes. Moses is saying, your nation has been greatly enriched by the slave labor of all of these people. My people. Let him go. Deny your country this enormous financial asset that has built these magnificent cities, these incredible uh, edifices to the glory of Egypt. Let him go. Can you imagine Pharaoh's response? Who in the world do you think you are? And yet Moses stood before him fearlessly because he was trusting in the one who rules and reigns over Pharaoh. However great and powerful a ruler Pharaoh is, God is ruling and reigning even over him. I want you to pay close attention to what we read here about the source of Moses' courage. It says, he endured as seeing him who's invisible. And that's an intentional play on words. He sees what he can't see. Remember, God had appeared to Moses at the burning bush. And I believe these, uh, these appearances of the Lord before the incarnation are pre-incarnate appearances of Christ. I believe that. Others disagree, but I, I think there's a good argument for that. But that's, Moses has seen. But Jesus is not standing next to him in the presence of Pharaoh. You can't see him there. And yet, with the eye of faith, he sees that which cannot see. He sees him who is invisible. Uh, that takes us back to verse 1 and the very definition of faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. God says, do not be afraid, I am with you. And he repeats that command and that assurance over and over more than 300 times in the Scriptures. Don't be afraid. He doesn't say, do not be afraid, you little chicken. What's your problem, you coward? He doesn't say that. He says, don't be afraid. You don't need to be afraid because I'm with you. Hear me, there are a lot of things that come into this life that are terrifying. 
There are legitimate causes for fear that if God were not with us, fear would, crum- would crush us. No question about it. But the reality that God is with us fortifies our hearts and enables us to overcome fear. And so Moses, he can't see God with his eyes, but he pays more attention to the God whom he cannot see than to Pharaoh whom he can see. He believed God, he trusted God, and he's able to confront Pharaoh fearlessly. Now, if you go back to the Exodus account, you see that Pharaoh is mocking Moses. Who in the world do you think you are? And who is this God you're talking about? By all accounts, Pharaoh had all the power of the gods testifying that he was on top and the God of the Hebrews was not. But we know that Pharaoh's mocking is arrogant and as convincing as it might sound. It was not a very wise move, right? The Lord answered that question, who is your God? The 10 plagues, each worse than the one before. And ultimately, the night of the Passover, the firstborn in every household of the Egyptians was put to death, including Pharaoh's own son. So no longer was it we're not about to let you go. It was, please leave. Take, take all of our riches. Do, just get out of here. They were terrified of the God whom they had defied. Faith enabled Moses to believe God, to stand before Pharaoh, which naturally was the last thing he wanted to do. But by faith, he did that, and he was able to lead the children of Israel out of their bondage. So I want to ask the question as we wrap things up in a moment, how does faith actually help us overcome fear? What is the dynamic of faith that helps us overcome legitimate fear or, or perceived fear? Because, you know, sometimes we're afraid of things that aren't really a real threat. We perceive danger that's not there. Fear of man. People will see me, they'll, they'll humiliate me, they'll embarrass me, they'll shame me. People might hurt me. People will reject me. And so we live in this bondage of perceived fear that maybe nobody's intending to do any of those things to you. And yet the fear of man impacts every single one of us to one degree or, the, or another. And some live in utter bondage to such fear. David says in Psalm 56, 3 and 4 that we read as our call to worship, when I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. In God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Now, it seems like David is saying, when I'm afraid, I won't be afraid. But it's not doublespeak. It's not mere denial. He's saying, when I am afraid, legitimately afraid, I have a powerful source of protection, my God. And I will trust in him, and because of that, I can live without fear. And after all, what can flesh do to me? Now, what is David believing about God, and what was Moses believing about God, and what are you and I to believe about God? What does faith lay hold of? It lays hold of biblical realities. It's the Assurance of things hoped for, promises that God has made, and the convictions of things that we can't see. Well, first of all, faith rests in the fact that God has all power, not Pharaoh. Not the people around you who might hurt you, who might threaten you. God has more power than they do. The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. 
He's more powerful than all of your and my enemies. God, secondly, is sovereign. He is in absolute control over everything that happens. Some of us feel like if I am not in control, then I'm going to be afraid. The only, the only solution to fear is to control all of the particulars and all the contingencies of my life. And if I've got everything under control, then I don't have to live in fear. That's not living by faith. Faith recognizes God is in control, and there are some things I can't control, and I don't need to control. That doesn't mean live irresponsibly, but it means I trust him rather than trusting in my own devices and my own strength. Moses didn't have any strength at all before Pharaoh. I mean, Moses had no control whatsoever as he stood before Pharaoh. And yet at the end of the day, Pharaoh was begging him to let him let his people go. Faith affirms God's in control and is content to leave our situation with him. Third thing, faith recognizes God is infinitely wise. He knows better than I am what I need. God knows what's best for me. He knows whether this trial would be good for me or not good for me. And so I'm going to trust that God knows better than I do in his timing, in his purposes, in every aspect of my life. God is all wise, even in those circumstances and those situations. I just plain simply can't make any, I can't make any sense of it at all. It just, I don't understand. Why is this happening? We rest that God is wise, and he knows. Faith also recognizes that God is good. He would not willingly afflict his children in any kind of a malicious way. He would never abandon us. He'll never leave us. He'll never forsake us. He's our father. He knows what we need before we even ask. And he cares about every little detail of our lives, even the hair on your head, the hairs of your head are numbered. For some of you, that's not a very big number, I understand. But he knows. And we can rest in God's sovereign provision and God's sovereign protection. Another aspect, God, our, our faith rests in the reality that God is faithful. He will not leave us nor forsake us. Therefore, we do not need to fear. Because he is faithful. Because he will deliver. Because he will care for us. He will fight our battles. We don't need to live in fear. We need to live responsibly. We need to be persevering. The Hebrew Christians that uh, in chapter 10 it says, some of you rejoiced at the seizure of your property. They probably didn't get that property back. But they recognize God is faithful. He's given me a better home in heaven. So I don't need to worry about what man has taken away. What can flesh do to me ultimately? My treasure's in heaven. Moth and rust, thieves, can't touch it. Even when we are afraid, when I am afraid, I'll put my trust in God so that I won't be afraid. What does that mean? It means, doesn't mean that the feeling of fear goes away. It means fear doesn't win the day. Fear doesn't call the shots. Fear doesn't determine the direction of my heart or my life. I trust in my God. He will deliver me in his way, in his time. You know, you and I, we don't face anything nearly as dramatic as bondage to Egypt, right? I mean, let's face it. <laughs> there are places in the world where life is very dramatic, but we don't face that here. 
We have a powerful enemy that we cannot see, and he is opposed to us. I mentioned uh, a week or two ago that in Revelation, it speaks of these two uh, servants of Satan. One was the beast, and the other is the prostitute, the harlot. And the beast represents oppression and persecution, particularly from wicked governments or powerful entities. But the prostitute uh, represents seduction from the world. And at one point in Moses' life, he was enduring pleasures and treasures. He was subject to the appeal and the seduction of the prostitute. And he said the reproach of Christ is more valuable than anything she can offer. At another point in Moses' life, he's experiencing the threats and the, 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 the potential harm of the beast who would destroy him and the people of God. And he looked to him whom he could not see and believed he would deliver him from those dangers that he could see. We sang a hymn a few moments ago. Hast thou seen him, heard him, known him? Is not thine a captured heart? Captured by what? Is chief among 10,000, own him joyfully, choose the better part, captivated by his beauty? Worthy tribute haste to bring. Let his peerless worth constrain thee. Crown him now, unrivaled king. Moses was captivated by the beauty of Christ. It's interesting. It says that Moses' parents saw beauty in Moses, and they protected him. Moses saw beauty in even the reproach of Christ and looked away from the treasures of this world toward that beauty and toward that glory. How can we be inoculated, as it were, from the seduction of the harlot that is running rampant in our land today. We don't face persecution like other people in other parts of the world, but we certainly face this seducing influence to go after the things of the world and find our pleasure and satisfaction there. How do we insulate ourselves, protect ourselves from that? Again, the hymn we read, what can strip the seeming beauty from the idols of the earth? Not a sense of right or duty. This is wrong. That ain't gonna help you. But the sight of peerless worth, captivated by his beauty, worthy tribute haste to bring. Let his peerless worth constrain thee. Now crown him unrivaled king. Amen.